Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Unplug with Annie. Today I have got such a wonderful guest on the show. I'm so excited. I have Dr. Alexandra H. Solomon on the show. She's the author of Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want. And this is her brand new book. Um, And I'm so excited to read it. I've got a copy and I can't wait. Um, Other than an author, of course, she's a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University. And she's just been doing wonderful work as a therapist, as a licensed clinical psychologist, and I just love the content that she she posts on the depth in which she talks about relationships, and it's just always so insightful, um, and she's frequently asked to talk about love, sex, and marriage with uh, many media outlets, such as the T- Today Show and Vogue and the Scientific American. And she's, yeah, she's just an incredible woman doing incredible work. And I think just it's going to be such an addition to this series. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome her on the show. Hi, Alexandra. Welcome to Unplug with Annie. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. It's so good to be with you. I just want to congratulate you on your, on your new book, um, Taking Sexy Back. Thank you. It's really fun to have it out in the world. It lived on my computer for so long and it lived in my heart for even longer than that. And now that it's out in the world, it's just, it's a really exciting process. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And and thank you so much for my copy. I'm going to definitely be reading it ASAP. Um, um, but I just want to talk and, and start a little bit about you and, and you know, how you got into this space and like, what grabbed my attention uh, was on Instagram with your content and you focus a lot on relationships and, um, and discovering the right relationships and how to have the right relationships. And I just find, you know, the, the psychology part of it so interesting. So where did your passion for all of this develop? Right. Well, I mean, the longest story is that I, I grew up in, uh, in a home where my parents divorced and my family was blended. And I think that I was always both curious about all the complicated dynamics I was seeing around me and a bit overwhelmed by them, feeling really little in a, in a situation with big people that I cared deeply about, but who seemed to be having a really hard time. And I think that's a pretty traditional origin story for most um, therapists, certainly most couples therapists. And so that was, those were kind of the early underpinnings of my interest in relationships. But I was always drawn, all of my reading when I was growing up, I read romance novels and relationship stories. I was always really fascinated by this world of love, but also felt like it somehow wasn't like a hard enough, like a sort of... um, like I needed to be in medicine, like something where it was more scientific, more tangible. So I had this kind of war inside of me. And by the end of college, I just was really clear that I wanted to study psychology and, and relationships. And it's been wonderful work for me. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the kind of big picture, how our cultural identities and cultural moments affect us. And I'm fascinated by the deep, deep interior stuff, how our relationship with ourselves really does create the foundation for how we love and are loved. So I'm two decades into my um, journey with my career, and I don't think I've been bored 
a, a moment sense. I am blessed to have lots of different aspects of it. I'm teaching, I'm doing therapy, I'm having conversations with you. Um, so there's, there are different ways in which I'm kind of um, shining a light on, on, on love and sex and intimacy. Yeah, that's amazing. And so the book, Taking Sexy Back, the new book, um, tell us a little bit about what we can expect from that, because I know you're talking a lot about uh, sexuality and, and empowerment. Right, exactly. So my first book was called Loving Bravely, and that book was really an introduction to this idea of relational self-awareness. So we so often think that the, the secret to success in partnership is choosing the right person. And in that book, we're really flipping the script on that and helping people become curious and compassionate with all the stuff that we bring into relationship. Um, when we're little, you know, we're absorbing all kinds of messages about gender, about emotion, about power, about what we can ask for and not ask for. And so helping people have a deeper map of their own interior is really the best thing we can do to create the foundation for a healthy, intimate partnership. But I was clear, even as I was writing Loving Bravely, that I had a whole lot more to say about sex than I was able to fit into, into one book because mostly because I think a lot of us grow up with a lot of silence around the topic of sex or a lot of fear around that topic. And it sort of feels like love is over here and sex is over here. And the research is really clear that really understanding one's own sexuality and being able to talk with a partner about this really tender topic, um, that's a, a, an, an important part of feeling really nourished and cared for in intimate partnership. And so, um, and I'm also aware, you know, this cultural moment we're living in, there's a lot happening around gender, gender expectations. I was, you know, we're, we're recording the day after the Super Bowl in the U.S. where this halftime performance was J-Lo and Shakira. And it was a powerful, yeah. powerful performance of um, ferocity and in this unapologetic femininity and celebration of strength. And I open up Facebook and it's just off like I really really struggle with people's entitlement to commenting on women's bodies mm -hmm. and how women's bodies move and how they are clothed and it was a reminder of the importance of books like Taking Sexy Back where what we're trying to do is help women locate their sexuality within themselves that your sexuality is yours despite the fact that we live in a world that currently feels completely entitled to comment at every turn on she's to this and she's not enough this and um, that that really makes it hard to understand our own our own connection to the erotic our own boundaries our own relationship with pleasure and all of that is so important yeah wow wow i i definitely look forward to reading it um you you mentioned gender and a question I have for you is, is in regards to the difference also between men and women. And um, we just seem so innately different. I'm not surprised there's a book saying, you know, men are, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Um, so obviously it makes sense that when two people come together, um, any two people actually, uh, you know, um, whether it's women and women or men and women or men and men, but um, that tension is going to arise. And you talk about in your content about being curious and you know rather than playing this blame game with each other and I'm interested to know what you mean what you mean by curious and and how do we really sort of like implement strategies to sustain a long-term relationship when we have these innate differences 
Exactly. Right. I mean, that is in some ways heterosexuality is this sort of cosmic joke, right? We're bringing together really different, um, you know, just really different bodies, really different kind of energies very often. You know, it's, we, we will never have the sort of nature versus nurture question answered. Um, and we do know that currently the world we live in sort of the patriarchal structures. And when I talk about patriarchy, I'm not talking about something that men are doing to women. It is basically a system of very narrow roles, mm -hmm. very clear boxes that, you know, girls should be in and boys should be in and men should. So I think there are ways in which we are taught to wear different kinds of masks that then when somebody who's been socialized as a, a male has been socialized to wear a mask, there's no vulnerability, there's no weakness, there's no admitting you're wrong. He has a particular set of challenges then because intimacy is all about admitting when you screwed up and all about kind of revealing your tender underbelly. And then women, the sort of socialization around put everybody else first and yeah. play nice and don't rock the boat. And so what we see with women is when they enter intimate partnership, they are they get angry we get angry but it doesn't oftentimes come out clearly mm -hmm. and directly it comes out sideways and you know indirectly and so there are different challenges that we get into based on how the world has told us we are supposed to be and um and this, this is true right in same-sex partnerships the the nature of the conditioning it may be that we've both been socialized in the feminine but we have different stories about how our families um, really shaped that and sculpted that and our own experiences of coming out and being present as our full selves and how those differences may get in the way, even though from the outside, it looks like we're both inhabiting feminine bodies. So that is a big part of my work is just helping people understand what parts of you have felt off limits because of how the world has told you to be and what are those gendered messages and how are they getting in the way? Mm -hmm. And that when when there is a gender difference that needs to get bridged in a relationship, we have to just be curious about it. Um, I, I mean, I've been married to my husband for almost 22 years and I will catch myself still making assumptions that of course he must view the situation the way that I do. And mm -hmm. sometimes he does, but a lot of times he's got a totally different take on it that um, I want to make, there are times I want to make his take wrong, right? I want to make a right and a wrong, but it's just different. And so yeah. can I stay still enough to really be curious about the difference in what he's picking up on uh, rather than just kind of assuming he's like me? Mm, wow that's that's good that's good that's really good i think yeah i could i could use some of that <laughs> in application um you also emphasize a, a dose-based approach to therapy um if i said that correctly um so could you could you tell us a little bit about what that entails and and when you do i'm not sure how exactly you you run your your, your therapy in terms of um the setup of it or whether it's very personal as per the client but when you do when you feel like you engage with people in this process of therapy for however long and then you know they they're set off into the world to, to deal with things on their own do you ever sort of fear that you know those old behaviors come back or those old habits will come back and um or are you quite certain that we can really re, re rewire our brain um you know, particularly with therapy and having undergone that process and that we can, yeah, actually start thinking differently and, and implement it from then on. Right. 
Yes. So I, it's a great question. And I, I mean, I love that part of our conversation is about therapy because I think the more we talk about therapy, the more we reduce, we reduce the stigma around therapy. And mm-hmm. I think we've done a nice job. We've, we've come a long ways in the time that I've been in the field. I think that therapy is much less stigmatized than it used to be. Though I think that um, couples therapy can still have a bit more stigma because we hold on to these very highly romanticized notions that um, love ought to be easy. And if it isn't easy, you must be doing something wrong. And so it's quite heartbreaking as a couples therapist when a couple comes to me and they've not you know, made love in years or um, there's been um, an affair that, often, some, that oftentimes is reflective of years of relational neglect or neglect of the, of the partnership or of the, you know, of the couple. So I like the idea of couples um, if we just talk just about couples therapy, I like the idea of couples reaching for support early on. I love when I have engaged couples or couples who are trying to decide whether or not they're going to move in together, or whether they're going to get married. I love that process because then what we're doing is just kind of helping them understand their dynamics. Every couple has dynamics. There's no such thing as a conflict-free relationship if what we want is intimacy and closeness we're going to you know bump into each other and <laughs> rub rub each other the wrong way sometimes so it really is just an uh, um, a matter of getting the skills that we need and learning how to kind of hold on to the both and of you are a wonderful partner to me and you're a challenging partner to me like that both those things can be true So we will do a dose of therapy, as you're saying. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, let's say it's around the transition to marriage because planning a wedding kicks up a whole lot of dust, right? A wedding is really two entire family systems coming together. So Mm -hmm. stuff gets activated for sure, for sure around a wedding. So that might be a great time for a couple to bring a couple's therapist in, have that support as they go through that, Mm -hmm. and then they go away for a while and then... You know, they're planning to have a baby. And then that kicks up in another entire uh, network of complicated emotions and dynamics. And so they come back into therapy. We do some work around that. So even if a couple has made change that is lasting, like they really do have new tools, they really do have a kind of gentleness with each other, life changes, right? The external forces change. So we can be fine, but now you've lost your job. Well, that's a whole nother challenge we haven't dealt with. Or I have some postpartum depression. That's a brand new challenge we haven't dealt with. So the external pressures can change and that might necessitate another round of therapy, another dose of therapy, as we say. So I like us to think about therapy as something that we kind of tap into and let go of uh, throughout our lives. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's a really great point that you make that, you know, like through life, we, I suppose we have these constant triggers, if you like, um, depending on circumstances that are happening, and then and therefore need a different approach in that matter. Um, and then obviously, there's, there's uh, maybe traumas from childhood and certain things that we haven't revisited, which can cause us a lot of pain. Um, as well as trauma that develops later in life. And, and for both, if, if we were, for somebody who's maybe not going to therapy, but is understanding that, okay, I'm feeling these things or, or this situation is bringing up these emotions, are there any sort of um, practical steps or, or steps that people can do wherever they are, you know, by themselves mm-hmm. um, to, to kind of 
enable healing from trauma or do or is it really about being open to enter therapy because you know somebody else is able to bring that out of you much better than you are able to to do yourself right you know the tricky thing with trauma um is that the our traumas are often relational traumas when we think about sort of childhood sexual abuse or physical abuse um a parent who has abandoned the family like these kinds of traumas are relational in nature the wound is relational in nature so the healing needs to be relational as well. And I am clearly, I'm a huge fan of self-help books and podcasts because I write the books and I'm on the podcast. So I love that. But I think there is always going to be a place when it comes to trauma, there's always going to be a place for therapy with somebody who gets trauma because yeah. what the field of trauma science has shown us really clearly is that trauma lives in our bodies. You know, it really um, alters our neurology, our physiological responses. So when we say triggered, it really is a physiological shift. Mm -hmm. And so there is such a place for therapy. Um, that being said, therapy isn't always available, you know, or um, geographically available or financially feasible. And so the biggest, the, the most powerful tool that I would say um, somebody could use on their own would be mindfulness practices. You know, mm -hmm. mindfulness has been, we in the West, especially therapists in the West, are acting like we've discovered something <laughs> brand new and mm -hmm. mindfulness is all over our field now. But in reality, mindfulness is thousands and thousands of years old. It's part of Eastern philosophy and cultural practices for thousands and thousands of years. And so there are mindfulness-based apps now and um, books. And so having a practice where each day we are noticing our thoughts rather than being a victim of our thoughts that can help us then when we get triggered in our relationships because we're going to our children will always trigger us our mothers will always trigger us our intimate partners will always trigger us we're going to that's the nature of relationship is that we will get stirred but when we have that cushion of mindfulness practices, we are less at risk of just kind of swirling down the drain, you know, becoming all reactivity. We can have just that little bit of space that says, okay, like I'm feeling the stir, I'm feeling the rush, I want to attack or I want to flee or I want to shut down. And being able to say that is very different than acting on it. Because the moment I can say I have the urge to flee, I now have a bit of maneuverability. I can say to my partner, let's just pause here. Let's just take a break. I need to calm myself down. So mm -hmm. it's a radically different, radically different to say I feel triggered than to just be kind of lost in it. And so those mindfulness practices are important. Yeah, wow. So also just having that awareness, I guess, developing that awareness in you to be able to communicate that, hey, I'm feeling like this. Um, yeah, that's so interesting because I just feel like, at least in my parents' generation, I feel like that's something that is, is missing. Like for me, seeing their relationship, I just feel that um, that communication aspect of being able to be honest about our feelings is um, something a lot of people find challenging. Yes, because because we don't. If we didn't, if we didn't grow up seeing the language or learning the language of feelings of 
what we say in my field is going meta, like going meta is like stepping up a level and saying, this conversation is hard for me, or I'm too upset to say anymore, or I love us too much to keep talking right now. If you never saw that modeled, then how would one ever know that? Um, mm. But that's the beautiful thing is we can, no matter, I mean, I may spend a week, you know, over the course of a week, I may be working with a 19 year old on how to develop that language. And I may be working with a 50 year old on how to develop that language. So it's never, ever too late. But I will say that when people start to learn this, what can happen is a ton of grief about all the years they spent just living in their reactivity. Um, mm. And so I think that can feel that can feel really sad of the kind of time, like the flashes of memories of when we were reactive instead of responsive. Um, but I think it's it's a it's a time. It's that's in that moment we need to be compassionate with ourselves and just send ourselves some love and you know remind ourselves that it's beautiful to be learning this no matter what age we are. Yeah, of course. And I, I want to talk a little bit about um, release, like being the being the, uh, the the title of this series. Um, I find this topic really interesting, just about you know transition and how we can transition better. Um, and it's something that I've personally struggled with, like you know release and surrender, and and by that I just mean like sometimes just taking your hand at the steering wheel and not wanting to control every outcome. And I think a lot of us are sort of like these control freaks. And, you know, if things don't go our way, we just kind of collapse. Um, and I think in relationship, that is so challenging because you're not just dealing with you, some, suddenly someone else, which we've mentioned who, you know, has a different upbringing, has a different way of thinking and everything. Um, is, is there an, like not an easier way of doing this, but is there, is there certain tips or any tricks that you recommend um, in order to make this this process easier, like how do we how do we like transition better and and release things better? I guess right. Yeah, I transitions. I mean, it kind of goes back to what we were saying about the dose based approach to therapy, right? Because what I'm saying is one might need another dose of therapy around a transition, a transition to parenthood, a transition around a job, because transitions are just inherently destabilizing even and I think the sneakiest transitions are the ones that we in our we want to label good right like job loss it might be a little bit easier to be like oh job I lost my job that's painful my feelings of sadness make sense but there can be deep feelings of sadness around really exciting transitions a transition to marriage that is there can be really complicated feelings around the transition to marriage even though it is a joyous experience it doesn't mean that we don't also experience other like aspects of it because whatever we're choosing transition oftentimes is about us choosing something new mm. and when we choose something new we are oftentimes letting go of who we used to be or what we used to be and there is even if we want this new thing there still is a space to have feelings about the thing we're letting go of um, so I think just noticing that like there's something very different about noticing the rise and fall of these different feelings versus what we end up doing is we have a feeling of sadness and then we attach a story to it like uh oh i'm i'm getting married but i'm aware that i have this like pocket of sadness mm -hmm. that must mean i shouldn't be getting married i've chosen the wrong person i'm not cut out for this i'm doomed to 
repeat the mistakes of my family. Da, da, da. We end up like taking ourselves down this rabbit hole, mm-hmm. attaching meaning to an emotion versus just staying present to the emotion, staying curious. Like, what are you saying to me? Emotion of mine, right? This idea that it's, I don't need to make meaning of it. I can stay present to it and just wonder about it, be curious about it. And inevitably, when we can meet an emotion with curiosity, it will just, you know, resolve itself. It'll go on its way. It will just be a part of the process. Yeah. And, and what is your take on, I, I did read the book recently, which is um, about love languages. And that's what was something very new to me. And, and so what is your take on this? Because there's apparently five love languages, which we have. And, you know, it, it, it really opened my eyes to this idea of, really delving into what compatibility is and the fact that we actually do have very specific needs and sometimes if we don't know what they are actually are and get to the bottom of them you know we're we're possibly not going to attract the right partners and the right people um would you agree does it does it all knuckle down to 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 our love languages or is there something is, is there so much more involved well, I, I mean, I think that the reason that the Love Languages book has sold about a gazillion copies is because it's just so resonant. Um, and it isn't. It's not the sum total of relationship. But what it does is it really highlights that love is a verb and love is enacted in the space between people. And if I want to love you well, it's in my best interest to understand how you receive love best. And that's my responsibility. As somebody who is loving you, it's my responsibility, it's my opportunity to understand your easiest way to take in my love and then try to provide it to you in that way. So we, so the point, the, the basic thesis is that, right, we have, we have um, a sort of like a mother tongue, like a native language around love. What's the easiest, most preferred way for us to give and receive love? And that comes from maybe shaped by culture, gender, family system, whatever. But we have it. We kind of go into relationship with a, a one or two sort of predominant love languages. And maybe two people come together and they speak the exact same love language. And so it's easy. There's just words of affirmation that flow back and forth. But inevitably, we choose a partner who maybe has a different, I wrote about this in Loving Bravely. My husband and I have very different love languages. And so mine is words of affirmation. So I will sometimes, it happened this past weekend, where I was really desperate to hear, hear with words something that we were struggling with. I, I really wanted him to talk to me about um, this sort of dynamic we were wrestling with. And he will do it, but it, it is not his first go-to place. In his mind, the, his is acts of service. So in his mind, he was taking care of things. And that was how he was letting me know that he was in my corner, was by taking care of stuff. And I can say, yes, and. Like, yes, and. Especially if I'm, if it's something where I'm feeling tender, vulnerable within myself, that's when I know that I need to be clearer in asking for what I need. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm, because I'm on shaky ground and I need a bit more affirmation than I would if I was you know, feeling like I was on sturdy ground. So what I love about it is it just gives us a chance to enact love, give love in ways where it's going to be received well um, mm-hmm. versus you know, 
all these things we may do thinking they are love. And if our partner isn't coding it, then it's, it doesn't count. <laughs> it's not going to, it's not going to land the way we imagine it would, it should land. Yeah, of course. And suddenly what I'm finding on, on sort of social media and, and another thing um, that is being spoken about a lot is, is red flags. And um, just, you know, these are the things that we should look out for. And, but I feel like to a certain degree, people are forgetting that they are quite, although they're great pointers to make, I think it's also quite a generic approach to put out there that, you know, you're just looking for X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and, but do you believe that it is important to look for specific signs early on in a relationship, which then sort of determines the outcome of that? Um, is, is there sort of like this prevention phase? Right. Well, there certainly is a space for talking about red flags when we're talking about early indicators that somebody is going to be abusive, that somebody is going to be um, dangerous in any way to us, mm -hmm. or red flags that somebody is not taking care of their emotional health, or they're struggling with addiction, or they're constrained by patterns of dishonesty. So those are certainly like characteristics that live in a person that may make them a challenging partner. Now, somebody who's in recovery from addiction or somebody who has mental illness but is very devoted to managing it, those people can be the most amazing partners because they live in truth, they live in integrity, they have learned how to deal with the stirs inside of them. But untreated, unacknowledged, unaddressed emotional health challenges or addictions or you know, patterns of deceit are very, you know, make somebody a high risk investment, certainly. What I think we slip into sometimes is we miss the fact that actually there's a space for thinking about relational red flags. I think what's easy is for me to stay on the sidelines and just scan or swipe and say, you got red flags, you have red flags, you have red flags, versus either looking at my own red flags, what are the problematic, challenging things that I'm bringing to the table, or looking at a relational red flag. We may be a poor fit not because of anything wrong with me or with you, but just because you really, really, really value freedom and I really, really value togetherness. So you may be a perfect partner for those five people, but for you and I, we are gonna just you know, go toe to toe all the time about togetherness versus separateness in a way that's going to exhaust both of us. So something can be a red flag, but it needs to be framed as a relational red flag very often, like the just, I can think the world of you and, th and, and have a feeling that we wouldn't be great to each other, for each other. Okay, okay, brilliant. I think that's, that's definitely good clarity to have. Um, the last question that I have for you um, would be, you know, with therapists, and I have to talked to a lot of coaches and therapists on, on the series, but just the fact that do, do therapists need therapy? Um, how do you, how do you, you mentioned this, um, this incident the other day with your partner of you wanting certain words of affirmation, but clearly you, you know, you recognize all of this. Does that become, or has that become much easier for you because you have this foundation of just constantly learning about people? Um, and do you, do you struggle with anything that you find hard? And, and yeah, if you could talk a bit about that. Sure. Yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, I have had therapists. I have loved my therapists. I've had individual therapists. I've had couples therapists. I have been um, a really diligent consumer of therapy over the years 
because it's because it keeps me well and aligned and able to be the partner and the parent and the clinician um, that I want to be, right? So it helps me stay um, stay in the lane that I want to to be in. So I really have valued it as a tool, and I'm I'm pretty um, pretty passionate about um, not getting lost in sh in feeling ashamed of that because I want to really model that for other people as well, that this is a part, something that has really been valuable um, in my life. And I, I'm really comfortable. <laughs> I'm really comfortable being a work in progress. And um, so when I train graduate students, I really convey that to my graduate students. that I want them to be seeking therapy and having that experience of sitting on both sides of the room. Because I think that then, I think a therapist who hasn't done their own therapy may risk bringing a kind of arrogance into the room, you know, a kind of like, there are us healers and there are you sick mm -hmm. people. And that's a very problematic dynamic um, versus that we are all, you know, I may have a, I have tools, I have expertise, I have knowledge and I'm, you know, very well trained. And there's nothing that my client is going to bring to me that I can't at least resonate with in some way, shape or form, because it's all facets of the human experience. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I think that's a really great point to make. And I, I probably a, a, a point that lots of people tend to question as well, whether, um, you know, therapists do have these perfect lives and uh, seem sort of untouchable and they're on a pedestal. But and, and lastly, I would just want to ask that is there any sort of mindfulness um, activity that you sort of swear by that you do in your daily life, which really works for you and, and it, it's like your go to? Well, my go-to is rather than having like one long period of time where I do mindfulness each day, I will do mindfulness breaks um, when I'm, if I'm, have a, have a long day at my desk, you know, creating content or whatever, I will do mindfulness breaks where I will just pause and, you know, close my eyes and just sort of ground myself again. Or oftentimes it's when I arrive someplace in my car, I'll just kind of sit quietly for a bit. So I try to be mindful around transitions and little kind of breaks throughout the day rather than, you know, one formal sitting each day. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking time out and, and coming on and sharing your wisdom. And it, it's so great to talk to you about all of this. Same. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great to connect with you. And that was the end of an episode of the series of release. I will be back next Sunday with another episode from the same series as we continue this journey, primarily focused on relationships, on healing, on self-love. And I'm super excited for you to tune in to more episodes with a lot more new guests. I can promise you that you're going to take something away from all of these episodes and all of the amazing people that I'm going to be talking to. And meanwhile, you can stay updated with everything Unplug on the Instagram page, Unplug with Annie, and on the Facebook page, Unplug with Annie. You can also go to the website and sign up for the emails if you haven't already, which is www.unplugwithannie.com.